0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 43. i got a wide variety of stuff. Hopefully, some of it all makes sense together. We're going to see. We're going to spend some time talking about riving, specifically how we're doing it, what type of species work for it, etc. We're going to talk a little bit about the change in the cherry, the domestic black cherry prices. I've got some uh, talk about slabs coming out of smaller mills, smaller um, wood miser type mills. We're going to talk about drying wooden bowls. And we've got a question about selling your CITES regulated species. So should be interesting. I'm trying to find a common thread between those topics. I'm not seeing one right now, but hey, it's all about lumber. So there's a common thread. So I want to start today with a little bit of news. Uh, recently, Northwest Hardwoods filed for bankruptcy. Northwest Hardwoods is one of those enormous distributors in North America. And they kind of are behind a lot of the lumber that we buy. Um, They are similar to the company I work for and that they are a large wholesale distributor, but also will do some retail work. They have a number of retail locations. They also have a number of sawmills, so they are kind of a stump to lumber rack type provider. And uh, yeah, they have fallen on really hard times lately, and it was interesting. The article, the CEO talked about lumber tariffs as being the cause of this bankruptcy as tariffs drove the price of North American lumber up to China, which China is a major consumer of North American hardwoods, like major, major consumer. They would consume more if it was easier to sell it over there. Um, Frankly, just in in my day job, I have probably, I don't know, four or five uh, inquiries uh, a week from a China builder, producer. And they're not just looking for a thousand board feet of lumber. They're looking for like 100 containers um, of variety of domestic species. So as the tariffs got imposed and drove the cost of North American lumber up to China, China began looking for other sources for lumber. And there are large companies like Northwest Hardwoods that have a sizable percentage of their business that is in export. And when that disappeared overnight, in some instances, they were in trouble. And... I just I bring this up because there was an article with the CEO that put the blame squarely on these tariffs on how uh, if we hadn't made our lumber so expensive to foreign markets this wouldn't have happened, and it was it was kind of it was kind of interesting. I can't remember the exact phraseology. I will post a link to the article, but it was it was a very kind of risky statement to make, especially in America where there's this real pride of manufacturing buy American and keep American jobs. Here is a corporation, a president that is saying if only we could sell more overseas, we would have been able to stay in business. And it it, it seemed like kind of a risky statement to make, blaming the demise and the loss of all these American jobs and the fact that there is a tariff that's been put in place with the intention of protecting American manufacturers. That's what these tariffs are for, folks. They're they're anti-dumping tariffs that are saying, hey, we need to impose this, this price hike here because, I don't know, call it which will, unfair marketing practices, unfair practices that is making it difficult to sell a North American-made product in comparison to uh, a really cheaply foreign-made product. So You know, there's a lot of politics built in these tariffs, but at the same time, lumber tariffs have been around since the Carter administration, folks. This is not something new. This is not something as a manufacturer that you should be surprised by. If you are doing a large amount of, of overseas business, you have to be conscious that a tariff is going to come and affect your business at some point. So to have this entire large corporation have to shut, shutter a bunch of businesses, lay off a bunch of workers, and now file for bankruptcy protection, I don't know. It, it, I'm having a hard time feeling bad about this. <laughs> uh, there's my editorial statement. I'm having a hard time sympathizing when you knew it was coming. So I don't know. Um, this, is, this is me certainly uh, massively editorializing. I would love to hear some opposing points of view on this. Anybody has some more information on this? Anybody wants to tell me that I'm terribly wrong? Please do. I would love to hear it. But uh, I read this article and I was like, wow, that's kind of a risky thing to say. So anyway, moving on. A couple people had sent that article to me, so I wanted to at least address it. Now, I got... An email from Sean that (laughs) I just had to read because it made me smile. He says, uh, I wanted to thank you for your knowledge and especially the way you've demystified the jargon and industry procedures for those of us that are weekend or part-time woodworkers. This morning while taking my kids to school, I had to call a local lumberyard to see if they had any hard maple for a stair remodel I'm trying to finish before a few family members visit for Christmas. After the call was over, my 15-year-old daughter, who has become an avid woodturner, commented that she had no idea what I was saying during my call. Thank you, hands-free Bluetooth, for removing all privacy. Thinking about her comment, I realized that we were using terms like number one common, FAS, S4S packs, RWLs, etc. A year ago, I would have never had the nerve to call this particular lumberyard because I wouldn't have had a clue which questions I needed to ask or even what the rep was referring to when they replied with cryptic unknown acronyms. I would have continued paying premium prices for lumber from my local woodcraft or picking through stacks of twisted dimensional lumber at the local big box store. So thank you for your amazing podcast and the continued contribution to the woodworking community. Sean, this just makes my heart smile. Thank you so much for sending that. And this is really the point behind this podcast. I'm going to, here I go again, I'm going to editorialize, but I believe that the lumber industry has held its cards close to the vest for too many centuries. I still don't understand why so many of my colleagues in the lumber business are intent on using jargon. Certainly every industry has jargon, but a lot of industries try to, they have they have like an internal... Uh, um, uh, language, and then they have a customer-facing language. And they're trying to demystify their products or their industry to their customers to make it easier for their customers to understand the price that they're paying and the value that's being brought to them by the industry. The lumber industry has done just the opposite. And this is why I run into so many woodworkers and contractors and builders who constantly think they're being screwed by their lumber guy. And it's this, this idea that we, the lumber business, have this precious commodity and we can charge whatever we want for it. and if we wrap it in in weird terms and all kinds of uh, uh, esoteric grading terms and everything, we can hoodwink the customer into thinking that they've gotten a deal when maybe they haven't. Or the, the upside of that is, is again, the customer walks away thinking, I don't know what just happened and I probably just paid too much. This happens time and time again and this has got to stop, folks. This has got to stop. The lumber industry has been around for so many, many years, and not much has changed, and there's actually some really, really cool stuff going on in the industry, but we t- just refuse to like pull back the curtain and show our customers what's going on. There's a lot of value being added by lo- by your local lumber yard, but you just don't see that. So I, it was really great to see this, Sean. I would love to see more customers being educated about how the lumber industry works and how to engage with the lumber industry, because I'm afraid to say you're not gonna see the lumber industry become user-friendly. It hasn't happened in the last hundred, several hundred years, and I certainly don't see it happening. I'm seeing little things here and there. The internet has certainly leveled the playing field a lot, but there's still just a lot of jargon and a lot of, I don't really know what I'm doing, and a lot of intimidation. You know what I'm talking about. If you've walked into the lumber yard and wondered, oh crap, (laughs) I'm in over my head. That's the lumber industry's fault, not your fault. And hopefully, hopefully this podcast will help overcome some of that. So moving on Uh, again. Thanks, Sean. I do appreciate that. So I got an email a while ago from Matt about riving and he said, can can you talk a bit about riving? Here's my background. I have some short logs that I was trying to get straight grain pieces out of more experiment than immediate need. So I fooled around with splitting some with an axe and uh, some with log splitting wedges and a sledgehammer. I found that to be kind of a pain, mostly because I just wasn't good at it. I'm sure I can look somewhere else for advice on, mini, on, on my mini faults here, but if you want to dive in here, have at it. So then I saw someone using a fro. Um, they were making a rake on Instagram, so no action shots, but just him taking a band off a log and it falling apart into nice little square pieces. I resisted the immediate whoa awareness of a new tool. I must order one immediately. He's talking about the fro. And I figured to ask you how you might split or rive wood and what tools you like for doing that. Maybe which woods work. I have the impression of things that with interlock grain like elm might not be the best choice. So Matt, you are on the right track there. Um, First, let's talk about this. Um, Riving wood is splitting woods. If you're not familiar with that term to rive, it means to split. If you've ever split firewood with a maul or an ax, that's what it is. It's capitalizing upon the weakness inherent in the structure of the log, of the tree. And the best woods to rive, wait, let me back up. There are a lot of people who will say, you can only rive certain woods, you know, and some woods won't rive at all. I don't believe that. I think that any wood will split. And if you take a wood that somebody says, oh, there's no way that's going to split, and you hit it with a sledgehammer large enough, it will split. The change is, is how cleanly will it split? How controllably will it split? And in some instances, maybe it's less of a split and more of a fracture. I'm going to bring up baseball here. Go way, way back, and baseball bats used to be made out of hickory. Then they were made out of ash. and now you know, wooden baseball bats that are made out of hard maple. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, Basically, the large demand for not just uh, Major League Baseball baseball bats, but like Little League baseball bats, the baseball bats that you buy, you know, in the hardware, in the the hardware store, in the sporting goods store. Um, Hickory was not really a species that could be found in, in very, very large quantities. It also needed to be perfectly straight and clear. You certainly can't have a knot in a baseball bat. So hickory fell out of fashion. Ash, same thing of course the emerald ash borer didn't help with that maple has always been a tree that grows big you know tall wide with very very little defect maple is definitely the the wood of choice for baseball bats because of that and that's why we see it today but go back and look at really old baseball games and watch when the bat breaks you see a hickory bat It splinters and it actually doesn't come into two parts and you find like the end of the bat is still swinging attached by connective tissues an ash bat when it would break it would splinter it would usually break apart into two pieces but it would splinter and all of the force was kind of right there in the bat itself you know it would fracture would make this lovely lovely snapping sound and generally there wasn't really no splinters flying or anything like that you see a maple baseball bat and it explodes It fractures and it sends shards going everywhere. And this is the inherent difference in the species that causes some lumber to rive better than others. Maple is a very dense, diffuse, porous wood. So again, we can go back to lumber terminology here, but hardwoods have pores. Softwoods do not have pores. We'll get to that in a little bit. The pores are essentially dead space. It's dead air inside the wood. if you took all those pores and you line them up in neat rows, that's what we call a ring porous wood. It's kind of like perforations. Go back and look at the old dot matrix printers. You remember the printer paper that had to have the little holes on the side that that, you know, fed through the printer and then when you printed something out, you ripped the little pieces off the edge. That's what those pores are. Those pores lined up in ring porous means that you can drive a wedge and it splits very cleanly along that weak spot Along that dead air on the pores. Well maple first of all having very very small pores very little dead air And they're diffuse pores meaning they're scattered throughout the the the, the wood itself. There's no pattern to it They're kind of well not so much evenly but in the case of maple they are evenly spaced and again quite small so all the stuff that's not pores is the really dense connective tissue of of the wood itself. So when there is excessive force put on a baseball bat and it tries to split, there is no predictability to it. It will break along those pores, but you know, one pore will split and then there won't be a pore like right in line with that that vector of force so it kind of shoots to the path of least resistance which could be the next pork which could be you know 90 degrees 120 degrees from where the line of of fracture was and that's why you get this like a lot of built up force in there that explodes outward and it breaks apart into these little shards all over the place because there is no pattern to the structure of the wood to cause that that fault line if you will and ash bat is ash is a ring porous wood, rather large size pores. So when it splits, it breaks along that ring porous line and you know it, it splits apart into two very clean halves. Hickory has even larger pores and even more organized ring porous structure. So it would split like really easily. Now, the other thing with hickory is it has a much higher bending strength and a much higher stiffness. So when it did split, it kind of absorbs some of that uh, force as well, kind of absorbed it back on itself due to the high stiffness. This is why Hickory makes great um, axe handles, because there's that little bit of flick, that little bit of spring in the last part of the swing that exerts just a little bit more force on the axe head. Hickory baseball bats are great for that, because when you make contact with the ball, there's that little bit of extra spring that throws the ball out there. But as I said, sustainably, it wasn't the good source there. So you can look at three different species there, two ring porous, one diffuse porous, and they're going to split very differently. So let's, let's keep that in mind when you are arriving woods. The species will make a difference, but I'm not saying that the species means, oh, that's, that's diffuse porous, you can't split that. The other factor is, is how interlocked is the grain? Um, what I think Matt brought up, elm. Um, That is a good example of a highly interlocked species. Going back to the 18th century, wheelwrights were making um, wheels, obviously. They would have a hub, they would have the spokes, and then they would have the fellies. Those are the, the outer parts that the tire was wrapped around. The spokes would have been riven. They would have been split out to get perfectly straight grain. Because once you split a board, when you break it along the weak lines, those pores... What's left is that really hard, dense stuff in between the pores. And when it splits along those um, natural, we'll just call them defects, natural structural defects in the wood, what you're left with is a very straight piece that is quite flexible without breaking. Same thing we use for making spindles in Windsor chairs. So the spokes in a wheel would have been riven out in order to capitalize on the strength, to remove the weak spots, the the poor perforations, leaving behind the the strong, flexible, able to take the force of, of a wheel. The hub, however, had the spokes driven into it And that hub needed to be made out of a species that would not split, and it was often made out of something like elm. You'll drive, chop a whole bunch of mortises around that hub and then drive the spokes in it. And the spokes are actually designed to kind of wedge in place so that when the force of the tire goes around them, the metal tire, as it shrinks and it sucks everything together, as well as as that wheel rolls, it's pushing down on that hub. If that hub were a split-prone species, that wedge-shaped spoke driving into it would just split it apart, so you need a split-resistant wood. Does that mean you can't split elm? No, you take a sledgehammer big enough and a wedge big enough and pound on it, you will eventually get it to split, but it's not going to split cleanly. It's going to fracture apart. It's going to follow these weird curvy lines because of the interlocked grain, and you might never actually get it apart into two pieces without then going at it with a, with a hatchet to kind of break the whole thing apart. So th- those are kind of the extremes, those interlocked, diffused, porous woods that may fracture or may definitely not split in a straight line to something like red oak that if you look at it crooked, it will split into lovely straight planks. Look at any of the work that Peter Follinsby has done while he was at Plymouth Plantation or after retiring from Plymouth Plantation, all the joined chests he makes. It's green, riven, red oak, and the stuff is absolutely a revelation to work with especially if you ever work with kiln-dried red oak and go, this is a devil weed. I don't ever want to look at it again. Try some green riven red oak and you will change your tune altogether. So certainly if you are looking for really straight boards, if you have a log and you're thinking, I want to make, you know, actual boards out of this, the more ring porous it is, the better, better control the split will be. If you are looking to make Turning blanks, and you just need like two by two blocks to make like Windsor chair legs. Well, then you can take something like maple that doesn't split really controllably and you can break it apart into smaller planks. So that brings me to the next point. The larger the split you're trying to achieve, the more difficult it's going to be. The more, um, when it comes to the species, those less controllable species, you're going to have a hard time keeping that split in control over a long length or over a wide length. So we do have to change our tooling a little bit. The fro, uh, well, originally was a tool used for making shingles and you had a, a somewhat narrower piece of wood to begin with and usually a thinner piece and you were just breaking it right down the middle. There's not a huge amount of wood involved. So you're not taking a cross section of a log, dropping a fro in it and splitting it into shingles. With the log, with that larger bit, you're starting with wedges and a sledgehammer that wedge will start the split and usually you have to kind of play leapfrog. I will start my wedges on the end grain and get the split going across the, the, the diameter of the log. The log is then on its side. Once that split is started, it'll, you'll start to see it run down the long axis of the log. I'll take a wedge, drive it into the long axis of the log and then leapfrog it. As that wedge goes in deep, it opens the split further down the log. You put a wedge further down the split from there, you pound that in and that opens the split in front of the wedge enough to be able to pull out the first wedge. And then you leapfrog and you work your way down until the log just kind of falls apart. Again, assuming it's a split-friendly species. But, you know, the the more wedges you drive in, the more you're controlling that split. So even a species like hard maple can be split, or a species like cherry that is also diffuse porous can be split with enough wedges and enough... um, guiding of that split down the log once you break that log into halves then you use your wedges to break that log into quarters once you get to quarters you might be able to start using the fro there's now less material that you're trying to rive apart and the lesser force of the fro and ie or 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 not ie um Uh, And therefore, the more control we have with the fro will allow you to be able to split out flat planks from this, like shingles or like boards for the side of a chest. It's there that the less than sprit-friendly woods, like the diffuse porous woods, start to become more difficult because that split doesn't want to just follow a straight line and it might curve and undulate around. And the fro can sometimes have a hard time doing that because there's just no ordered structure in the wood itself. So sometimes you just have to stick with the wedges in order to kind provide kind of a brute force splitting. And you may still not end up with a perfectly straight grain piece. You might still have some grain running out here and there. And that's really the goal when you're riving is to have, essentially when you look at the, the, the side, the face of this board you just split out, you have one growth ring visible on the surface. You're not seeing any lines on the surface because it's just one layer of growth. And that is super, super strong. Because once you go from one growth ring to the other, you have pores in between. And those pores, again, are weaknesses. So if you look at the tree as a a series of leaves laid on top of one another, or really they're cones because we're thinking three-dimensionally. But if you were to break it into a two-dimensional section, it's just a series of, think of veneer, sheets of veneer. If you've got sheets of veneer laid on top of one another, and if you kind of shuffle them out into a fan, all those little lines you're seeing between them, those are growth rings. And the area between the growth rings are, are weakness. It's, it's those pores that the, the, where the n- nutrients and the moisture and all that fun stuff has to go through in order to allow the tree to grow. When you split it, it's wanting to split along those lines. So, you know, you do have to think a little bit about wood species there. And in general, what you're trying to get out of that split it can dictate whether or not I should try to split the species. If you're just making firewood, you know, it doesn't matter. You just want to get it down into smaller pieces that are going to burn a little bit easier and you can go at it with an axe all day long regardless of the species. If you're actually looking to get, you know, an eight inch wide board that's somewhere around an inch thick uh, in order to make a chest, you want to choose a species that's got a more predictable structure like a ring porous species. And The larger the split, the larger the the block of wood you're trying to split, the more you wanna move towards wedges and sledges. Really once you, when you start employing a fro is when you're getting down to like your last split or maybe your second to last split. And what the fro does is because it's a wider wedge, you know, you think of your average splitting wedge is like maybe two inches wide. A fro can be six inches wide. It could be 12 inches wide. And you're driving this wide wedge through the wood in a very controlled manner. It doesn't require nearly as much force with the maul on the fro itself. It's it's more light tapping and you're exploiting that weakness. And the, the handle, really the lever on the fro, is allowing you to drive and direct that split. As you bend that, as you, as you move it to and fro, it is exerting force in a predict, predictable pattern on the wood itself and allowing you to guide that split and give you a nice straight plank. In order to do that, you just can't have that much wood. The way that you're guiding that split is usually by kind of bending the wood. A lot of times you'll see people using something called a riving brake or just standing on it or putting your knee into it will bend the board and apply force to allow you to guide the split. Well, obviously you can't do that with a log. You know, unless you're the Incredible Hulk, you don't have the strength to exert any kind of bending whatsoever on a log, or on a half section of a log, or a quarter section of a log. I don't care how big the tree is. It's really once you start breaking it below that quarter section that you have the ability to bend it and guide that split, and that's where the fro comes into play. There is a lot of art to this. There's a lot of practice that comes from it, as Matt was saying, you know, I'm terrible at it. Work at it some more. Having a fro, you know, if you're gonna do a lot of this, could be a fun thing if what you're trying to do is create boards for like furniture. If you're making turning blanks, I don't know that you're actually gonna need the fro. I think you'll find that a wedge will get you quite a long way. And if not a wedge, you know, a splitting maul will help a great deal. I urge you, anybody who's interested in this is probably gonna start falling down the green woodworking route or maybe even going into Windsor chairmaking. I urge you to pick up Peter Galbert's book, uh, Chairmaker's Notebook. The chapters he has on wood science and wood structure and moving into splitting are phenomenal. And his illustrations are fantastic. It is, I, I say this all the time, it is the best woodworking book. I don't care what you're into, bar none out there, it's the best woodworking book. And his opening chapters on wood science are one of the reasons for that. So I highly urge you to check that out. And certainly if you're not familiar with Peter Follinsby, check him out on YouTube. He's got a lot of of, of videos he's done on splitting and how to use a riving break and how to use a fro and when to use a wedge. Um, And yeah, he's one of the guys that will say, I don't even bother splitting cherry or splitting any of the diffuse porous woods. He will tell you, use only ring porous woods. We disagree a little bit there, but at the same time, he's a lot more experienced than I am when it comes to splitting woods. So maybe we should listen to him too. So anyway, there's my treatise on, on Um, Thanks, Matt, for the, the question. It is something that uh, several people have asked in the past. So I'm glad you brought that up. Next, Mike emailed me and said, I'm wondering if you know what's the deal with cherry. At least in the central New York area where I live, the price has plummeted. I've seen some locally selling for less than a buck a board foot. I was shocked when I looked at the state stumpage report. I see it's priced less than maple or oak. So Mike, yes, cherry has been dropping in price now for almost five years. The species itself has really fallen out of fashion. Um, And and again, the the people that buy the most wood are not the weekend woodworkers. It's, It's the contractors, home builders, and interior designers, and architects. And just the color palette has really fallen out of out of vogue for design styles. You're seeing a lot more of the white woods. Maple is still being used a great deal. Um, a lot of the reclaimed look is coming into fashion, and that's really falling heavily on the oaks, um, the more rustic type species. Cherry is not a rustic species. It's a little bit more refined, but it's also, um, you know, I, I think cherry and I immediately start thinking like shaker furniture. That warmer palette as well is just not in design vogue. So there's just not very much demand for it. There are um, a lot of other species like oak that are hugely in demand. So with that comes more and more people wanting to have oak on, on hand and cherry got kind of pushed to the back and there was less material in stock and because of that people stopped asking for it as much because there wasn't much available and it's just it's it's been a slow decline so in a lot of states you will find that it is really cheap other states you will find that it's still somewhat expensive because it's not available locally central new york you can still get a lot of cherry locally there's still a lot of sawmills that are sawing it and you will find that it's really inexpensive Pennsylvania, really expensive. Ohio, really inexpensive, because it, it grows there. It's an Appalachian wood, and you're gonna find any of the states that touch the Appalachian Mountains, yeah, they're gonna have cheap cherry. The other thing I urge you to look at though when you see really cheap lumber is make sure you're aware of exactly what you're buying. I've spoken about this before in the podcast, but once you start seeing lumber that's less than a dollar a board foot, you're probably looking at something that may not be fully kiln dried. You also have to question what is the grade that's coming from. Uh, less than a buck a board foot for cherry is very inexpensive. I suspect that it is not kiln dried, and I suspect that due to the size of the individual boards, it's probably at least number one common, if not number two common. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't use it. Could be a great deal. But in general, this species is really falling out of fashion. It breaks my heart because I love cherry. I love working with it. I probably have about four to 500 board feet of it in my own lumber shed because I do love working with it so much. But yeah, it's just not a popular species anymore. And when you compare it to maple and to oak, like you were saying, those are three to four times more popular than cherry. So this is just one of those market fluctuations you're going to see. And now that I've said it, look around at interior design and you will not see a lot of cherry. Look at kitchen cabinets. There's a lot of painted cabinets and a lot of white kind of maple type cabinets. Um, Walnut has actually come back into vogue a lot more than cherry. The reddish woods in general are much, much less popular. It's actually driven the price of mahogany down quite a bit. It's still expensive because it's a CITES protected species, but it's a lot cheaper than it used to be because it is a reddish wood. And in the design palette, it's just not that popular now. So Justin had a question about independent mills um, and sawyer processing. He says, I'm fortunate to have a pretty good retailer near me, but after listening to a few of your podcasts about sourcing, I decided to look to see if there were any smaller businesses near me as well. I found several, some that are basically mobile mills that will come to you, as well as a few that have sawn wood available to look through. It does appear though, that without exception, they are all sawing the logs into slabs, I've not seen any that do any further rough cutting to bring a piece of wood into a more rectangular cross section. Is this simply a function of the current live edge slab table or river table fad? Or is this being common among small mills for a long time for other reasons? It's been a while since I've been to my lumberyard due to COVID-19, but I'm almost certain that they have rectangular-ish rough cut lumber, not just slabs, in addition to the S4S stuff. So Justin, there's a couple things at play here. First of all, these mobile mills, these small sawmills, they are just that. They are a sawmill and not a millwork. The um, rectangular-ish boards you're talking about, whether it's uh, actually molded S4S product or an actually sawn into a board, that requires different machinery. It requires a straight line ripping uh, machine, or it requires uh, at least a forehead molder in order to make an S4S product that sawmill is just sawing logs into planks and probably not doing any further processing from there. Now you might find some sawmills that actually saw off the live edge, um, sometimes because they need uh, a flatter edge in order to reference against uh, the bed depending on the type of sawmill they're using. But more often than not, certainly because of the whole live edge fad, More and more sawmills are just leaving it on because why make the extra cut and remove the option from the customer? The customer may come and say, Well, I don't really want live edge, and okay, well, then you can rip it off. But if they come and say, I do want live edge, and the sawyer has already ripped it off, you can't add it back on. But it's just an extra step. If you watch a log being sawn on a sawmill, you know, you want to get you want it to go through and through. Um, You don't wanna be rotating the log as much as possible. This is why quarter sawn lumber is so much more expensive because it's very slow, It, it yields a lot less, and it's also labor intensive because you're rotating this enormous log. Unless you've got a huge mill that has all kinds of hydraulic lifts and things like that that can rotate the log for you, it is very hard to do and it's incredibly dangerous. It's a good way to get crushed by rotating a log around. And when you're netting so much less material and creating so much more waste that the sawyer now has to do something with, and maybe he's just burning it, but there are a lot of states that have burning bands, so what are you going to do with this? The easier thing is to through-saw a log, and essentially you're ending up with almost 100% yield. You've got, you know, the couple slices at the top that are just bark and cambium layer, but each one of those slabs now has a market and you can stack and sticker them. You end up uh, being able to dry a little bit easier because you've got that full log. You've got the advantage of saying, I've got a full flitch. I can number that flitch. You can buy the whole boule or you can buy one piece of it, but they could be sequence numbered as well, which could be an advantage from a marketing perspective. And it's just less work. That's really what it comes down to. If I've got my you know, um, my saw carriage or, well, if it's a saw carriage where the log is moving, maybe a little bit different there, but in most instances, these mobile mills, the saw head is moving. So it's a lot easier to just make a pass, drop the blade, make another pass, drop the blade, make another pass, and through saw or plane saw that into slaps. Additional processing beyond that point is labor. It's gonna drive up the overhead cost and these mil- micro mills have to be competitive as much as possible because they're not selling a dried product um, and as I said before, why remove the option from the customer? So as you move into the retail yards that in many instances are not are not sawmills, they're buying the lumber from a sawyer, they are generally doing additional milling, um, or they're buying it in a cubic volume, you know, a thousand board feet volume. And it's a lot easier to get a cubic uh, uh, measure from squared up boards that can be packed together neatly, that can be banded can be uh, put into a kiln like Tetris a lot easier. If you've got a bunch of live edge slabs that are unusually width and length, it's really difficult to pack them into a kiln. It's also very difficult to ship them. So once you start moving bulk amounts of lumber around, it's easier to square off the edges and be able to stack them together and wrap them, put them on a pallet, put them on blocks, something like that. And many of the yards that you're finding those squarish rectangular boards probably didn't saw it themselves and they had it shipped to them on a truck. As I said, it's a heck of a lot easier to do that. Unless you're specifically buying slabs, then the price goes up even more because you can't put as many slabs into that tractor trailer because of that unusual shape. So now you're paying for the trailer, but there's less material on the trailer because it just won't all fit. Yeah, all kinds of things in play there. And when you move into that independent sawmill, it's just easier to do less work when there actually is a market. When the people that are Generally, going to that local sawmill, have the tools to make a straight line rip. Why make the straight line rip for them unless the customer specifically asks for it? Okay, uh, Craig had an interesting question. He said, I started wood turning recently. We haven't talked about wood turning at all on this podcast. Uh, I watched a video from the Holland Bowl Mill in Holland, Michigan. They turn their bowls, then put them into a steam room at 180 degrees for four hours, and then air dry them. The video says that the bowls don't crack or warp then. What is the science behind this technique? Which, by the way, if you ever end up in Michigan, up in uh, Northern Michigan, uh, as you're approaching the Upper Peninsula, not in the Upper Peninsula, Holland is a cool place to go because of this bowl factory. Woodenbowls.com is the website, but they also have a wooden shoe factory up there. And you can go and tour both of these and see all this work being done. It's very, very cool. I I went there a couple summers ago and uh, had an absolute blast touring the whole thing. Anyway, so the idea here, you've got a bowl, you've turned it, and then they put it into a steam room in order to, to um, and they say it, it doesn't, the bowls won't crack or warp then. What you're doing here is equalizing the moisture content. When you turn a bowl, you have a massive disequilibrium, unequilibrium, imbalance, that's the word I want, a massive imbalance in moisture content. You've hollowed out that bowl, so you've removed all of this this, um, wood exposing the the damp, gooey center of the Twinkie in the middle of that bowl. The outside of the bowl doesn't have as much removed. The convex side of the bowl, it hasn't much removed. You've got this really, really moist center in the concave side that wants to take the whole bowl to warp, or in many instances, you've got a lot of fresh exposed wood on both sides of the bowl, but it's still uneven because there's no way to do it. You've removed more wood from the concave side of the bowl than the convex side of the bowl. And that causes that imbalance. It's going to cause the bowl to warp and possibly crack. And as a bowl gets thinner and thinner and thinner, it's got less kind of strength holding it together. So as it starts to warp, it can crack because maybe that bowl side is only three eighths of an inch thick or less. It could crack quite easily. So what they do with these bowls, once they've turned it, it's, 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 all bound up in tension. There's all kinds of stuff wanting to happen. You stick it in this steam room and you flood it with moisture. You absolutely saturate the fibers. So not only are you injecting a lot more moisture in there but you're injecting it evenly. Because the bowl is now saturated, there is no more imbalance in the fibers themselves. It's all 100% moisture content. And now because the bowl um, is at 100% moisture content in its bowl form, Thin-walled, you know, concave, convex faces. It will now start to dump moisture evenly when it's pulled out of that steam room. Now, more than likely, they're not just throwing it 180 degrees, 100% moisture, and then flipping the switch and pulling the bowls out. No, they're they're slowly lowering the temperature, dropping, flushing the steam from the room. So it's not, you know, there's no shock. And you're taking from 180 degrees, 100% moisture into a 60 degree room at 20% moisture. Now that, that may not be a good idea. You could, you could get some warping there as it moves dramatically. They're going to lower it slower, very much like a kiln. But the idea is is to, to um, balance the moisture, to bring that moisture to 100%. That way you know that it's the same throughout. And because of the thin walled nature of a bowl, it's going to dump that moisture relatively evenly if you had a really thick bowl, say it was an inch thick, first of all, it'd be really heavy, but then you might still get some cracking and warping because of the gooey center in that one inch thick bowl. So yeah, it it sounds funny. You're gonna prevent warping by injecting moisture, but it's the only way to know that you can actually balance out the moisture is by bringing the whole thing to 100%. Good question, very good question. And we'll round out the show with this other good question from Nick. he says, my, my dad and I found in the local newspaper uh, lumber for sale. And it turns out a lady and her husband have an insane collection of tools, huge machines and lumber. Her husband was quite the collector and she has a bunch of Honduran mahogany, at least it's marked as such. And she says genuine rosewood, but it's hidden away. Is there a way that she can sell it? I listened to your CITES episode and mahogany episode, but I didn't quite understand if she can just go to a lumber supplier and offload it. She also talked about contacting guitar makers for the Rosewood. She says her husband bought it all 40 to 50 years ago from a cabinet maker here in Ohio. I'm positive she doesn't have any documentation beyond that. And I just wondered what your thoughts might be on what she might be able to do. So the easy answer is once it's in the country, it's legal to sell. Um, CITES is regulating the import and export of material. When you're in the country and you're moving it from Ohio to Indiana or Indiana to California, there's no export there. It's all within the country and there's no CITES regulation across state lines. So it's legal. It's essentially grandfathered. Um, however, it was gotten into the country 40 or 50 years ago or even longer than that, it will be grandfathered. In the case of mahogany, mahogany's wasn't a CITES listed species before 2008, um, CITES as it relates to lumber didn't exist before, oh shoot, I'm forgetting 2005. I'm totally blanking on that. It's very recent. In other words, um, the Lacey Act was only started taking into account lumber very, very recently as well. You know, Lacey's been around for more than a hundred years, but it was all about flora and fauna. Um, but specifically not hardwoods. So all of these lumber regulations 40 or 50 years ago did not exist. So you can't say that's illegal in CITES, you can't sell it. Even though uh, genuine mahogany, Suetina macrophila, is a CITES Appendix 2 species, um, rosewood, well, it's all CITES listed, but there are different rosewoods that can be different CITES appendices and also different um, stipulations for that particular rosewood species. But again, it doesn't matter because it's already here in the country. I would bet, however, that, I mean, I guess it depends upon the size of the collection and the the, um, random nature of the collection. You know, if it's a bunch of just totally random blocks and various thicknesses and widths and lengths and things like that, a commercial lumber supplier may not be able to find a market for that. Maybe a retailer might be able to, but you'll find that she probably won't get as good a price for that because the retailer then has to mark it up themselves in order to make some profit on it. She'd probably be better reaching out to local woodworking guilds, um reaching out to like over the the internet to, you know, community forums and selling it to actual users, woodworkers um, that would be better off. Now, I realize that can be difficult because you don't want to sell it off piecemeal, but you probably could find, Uh, our furniture maker out there who would be willing to take the whole thing off your hands. I think you'll find the path of least resistance will be that way instead of trying to sell it to a lumberyard. I know we get people calling us all the time saying, we've got this collection here. And, you know, at first it's intriguing, but then we think about, well, how would we inventory that? How would that fit into our current inventory? Who would we even sell that to? Um, Because we're certainly not in the business of selling off one board at a time to various people. There are certainly internet retailers though, I'm thinking of Bell Forest, possibly Cook Woods, that might very well be interested in that. So that, that might be an opportunity there. I still think you'd be have better luck reaching out to an internet forum um, of, of actual woodworkers or even Facebook Marketplace uh, and have a lot more success there. The key is, is you really don't need to worry about CITES here, both from a grandfather perspective, but also because you're not exporting it out of the country. The minute you ship it to Mexico or ship it to Canada, that's not a CITES thing, but that's more of a phytosanitary through the FDA. So um, yeah, other things to think about there. So she, she wants to keep it within the United States. Um, there won't be any issues whatsoever. Again, CITES relates to import and export. and If you're doing neither of those, it doesn't matter. So good luck on that. And, uh, you know, if she ends up listing it, uh, write back in and let me know. I'd love to take a look at it as well because I need more lumber like I need a hole in the head. So anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Again, thank you to all of my patrons who sponsor this show and help keep it running. Um, I've had quite a few new of you Quite a few new of you, quite a few of you that are new that have sponsored the show recently, and I need to start listing some names here. But uh, that requires me to do some prep before the show, other than what I just talked about. (laughs) Anyway, folks, we are wrapping up quickly. The end of 2020. I'm sure we're all happy to see the end of this year, Um, and I'm looking forward to 2021 and a whole new slate of topics. I've got some good stuff. I've got a couple interviews that I've recorded. We'll be seeing shortly. So as always. Go buy some lumber.